Hi everyone, welcome to the Real World Behavioural Science Show with me, Stu King. I'm making this show on behalf of the Behavioural Science and Public Health Network. And if you're listening to this on the Friday that it's released, then get yourself over to the BSPHM website at bsphn.org.uk because it's the last day for the early bird pricing for the 2020 annual conference which takes place on the 12th of February. This looks like it's going to be an amazing event. I've been to a number of these in the past and they're really, really useful if you're interested in how behaviour science and behaviour change is applied in public health and beyond. Keynotes include uh, Professor Susan Mickey, who is a Professor of Health Psychology at University College London and also Director of the Centre for Behaviour Change and Eugene Milne, who's an excellent Director of Public Health up in the Newcastle Public Health team. It's actually cheaper to get a membership and book a ticket than it is to actually book a, a non-member ticket, so it's a great, great opportunity to get a membership to the BSPHN as well. Um, but today I wanted to welcome you to the part two of the interview with Professor Mike Kelly, who's at the Institute of Public Health at Cambridge University, uh, who also is the ex-director of NICE. Uh, we're picking up the interview, having heard a lot from Mike in part one. So if you haven't listened to part one, go back and listen to that first. Um, but part one was all about um, hearing about Mike's career, the history of public health, the sociological influences in public health, and how this all plays out in a political environment. But now we join the interview for part two to hear a little bit more about applying behaviour change science in public health and reducing inequalities. I really enjoyed the chat I had with Mike and I think that people listening will get a lot from just hearing from his experience. So we'll go over to the show and I hope you enjoy it. And if you've got any feedback, please do send it to me by email or Twitter or on LinkedIn. take on the question of nudge because um, it was a bit of a political um, it was a very popular political term back in the day anyway mm -hmm. and it seemed to offer um, a way of doing behavior change in a in a less intrusive kind of way and um, we've explored a variety of um, elements around that and the group continues to do so um, and I think we've learned a great deal indeed now about um, how that type of um, approach works, where it is helpful, um, what it can achieve, what it can't achieve. Uh, and it's certainly not the be-all and end-all. But what was terribly important about it, I think, was that um, for years and years and years and years... Um, both in the United Kingdom, United States and beyond, health-related behaviour change efforts had been focused almost entirely on the uh, cognitive rational system yeah. in, 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 in the human mind. Um, so let me give you this information about smoking, let me give you this information about alcohol, then you evaluate it and it go click, 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 ah, yes, I will change my behaviour. Well, of course, decades of efforts to do that have been, at best, suboptimally successful. Yeah. Um, at worst, have made no difference at all. Um, but of course, you know, I think it's there's a huge content of what we 
in our minds, which are driven by automatic or habitual responses to things and situations. And what Nudge focused on was the automatic response mm. um, in you know real world settings. And bringing the automatic response back into focus as an important part of the way we should be thinking about uh, behaviour change seemed to me be a very important um, development. Mm. And its its capacity uh, for um, benefit and disbenefit, I think we understand better now. So one of the things I was involved in, which is of extremely uh, importance sociologically too, is what they call choice architecture. Mm. How does the physical and to some extent social uh, nature of the immediate environment impact on our um, automatic responses? Um, and that might be everything from the smell of um, beautifully brewed coffee as you go into a shop through to um, you know the fact that you can't sit down in certain drinking mm-hmm. establishments and therefore will stand up and drink. It was alleged, but it actually turns out not to be true. But um, that kind of thing um, is... Um, you know, we, we, and we devised a typology in this group about the different elements of the architecture and so on that, that can influence choices. And I think that's been very interesting. And to my knowledge, it's one of the first uh, really systematic attempts to do that. Something else that I was involved in with that group was um, a, a systematic review, a very large systematic review of financial incentives um, and the way that they work. And we discovered, of course, that um, although there's... There are very many, 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 many papers on the notion of financial incentives and behaviour change. Um, the way it actually works is far from simple. Mm. And, you know, one has to say it depends. Um, and the mechanisms of how it works and when it works and when it, it doesn't work and all that kind of thing were revealed in this um, mega review that we did. What were the broad overviews of that? What were the broad outcomes of that? When does it work? when it's clear, when the behaviour you're trying to influence is relatively limited, um, and when the, um, the parameters of the decision that the person is making are themselves quite limited. Yeah. If it's just popped into a, you know, a complicated life that is not easily um, curtailed or limited to, the, it's, it's, it's likely to be less successful. So, for example, fill out this questionnaire for a incentive of x pounds is quite simple compared to lose weight there was a, there was actually a weight management program mm. in the uk and the us that paid people to lose weight mm. to varying degrees of success yeah um yeah that's it to varying degrees of success it uh, clearly financial incentives do affect behavior that's true but the degree to which it affects it and the extent and the circumstances and the types of behavior that it affects are um you know we we're only beginning to map them i think that's the point mm. um we need to it's also i think one of the other things that emerged in that study was that the kind of um a, a simple version of utility theory um maximizing gain minimizing pain that the psychology of decision making always known actually or well, sociologists have always <laughs> is more complicated than that um, and the simpler you know the base utility model in economics um, has it applies some of the time but not universally
Yeah. And this is the stuff that sort of from Daniel Kahneman's work. Well, Kahneman um, obviously was quite influential in the way that um, that group did its work. And I find Kahneman's work incredibly um, insightful, mm. actually. Mm. And um, particularly his notion of heuristics and the default to the simple solution to complex problems which as you probably know I've written about mm. and I see a lot of policy is simply that it, it won't address the complexity and it keeps defaulting to simple solutions. It's, mm. it's behaviour change stupid mm-hmm. um, <laughs> or, or you know this kind of thing. And so, um, yes, I think Kahneman's ideas of framing and heuristics, um, type one thinking, type two thinking, fast thinking, slow thinking mm. are in, in very, very insightful. Yeah. I had the pleasure of meeting him um, really? several years ago and um, he's a deeply witty chap, actually, yeah. or he was over over that particular dinner. Um, so it was um, a very nice guy. I've read quite a lot of Kahneman and other people who've written about Kahneman, and they've, or no, actually it may have been Kahneman writing about Tversky, who said, as long as you realise you're the second most intelligent person in the room, you're okay, because <laughs> I, I can't remember if it was about him. Well, I must check that now. Actually. Well, I, 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 they had a most extraordinary relationship. Yeah. Um, and... You know, when one reads Kahneman, it's quite clear that he's he was almost embarrassed about receiving the Nobel Prize because yeah. he thought the the legwork had been done by um, Tversky, um, or at least the the fountain of ideas. I don't know whether it's true or not, but um, he's a modest man too. Um, yeah. One has to say, at least at the time, I, he struck me that way. In spite of being Nobel Prize winner and you know Amazing. one of the most extraordinary psychologists of his generation. Yeah. In fact, we were there to honour his wife, not him at all. Really? And it was only through conversation that we realised who he was, actually. Really? Yes. Wow. Yes. What were you honouring his wife with? She was getting an honorary degree at um, University of York. Right, wow. Um, and he was there supporting That's her. quite extraordinary. I thought you meant like you were both at an event that you were both, you know, representing... No, no, no. He was oh, there wow. as a partner. Not my <laughs> wow. partner, he was partner. he was supporting. Wow. Yeah. Um, he was very much the supporting player, and yeah. we drove Amazing. in there. I remember we got we were in a taxi together, going, and I, you know, she was the one who was in the limelight that day, and she yeah. said, "Oh, this is my husband, Daniel." Oh, and then oh, I think the the taxi driver said, "Mr. Carnum, will you come this way?" I think, huh? <laughs> wow, <laughs> that is a great story. It's absolutely true. That as is well. a great story. He did crack a joke. I wish I could remember it exactly, but I know that the um, we had a lovely dinner uh, start when the first course came, mm. and um, we were waiting for the second course, and we waited and waited and waited, and it just it took forever, and it still didn't come. And he called the waiter over, and he said, by which time, of course, his identity had been revealed. He said. I know um, that I'm famous for writing about thinking slow, but could you please tell the chef to think a bit more quickly? <laughs> that is great. Mm. That is great. Did the waiter know what he was talking about? He the waiter didn't, done. but of course no. people around the table course, got yeah. it by then. Wow, and amazing. they were all getting copies of the book to get him to yeah, autograph. Um, wow, that's incredible. <laughs> wow. Behaviour change royalty right there. That's, that's incredible. Um, so... I and I should say, actually, there is a serious, a serious academic point to be made. I think his work, um, which influenced nudge theory, obviously, mm. and in, influenced um, the writers of nudge and so on, I think his is much more profound and much more um, both philosophically and empirically um, 
on the button than some of the derivatives that have come yeah. from his work. Yeah, I, but then <clears throat> perhaps not as accessible to uh, the general public, perhaps. No, not. although I, I think the book's Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, certainly the first four or five chapters are pretty clear, I think. I, I, I read that. I mean, the, is it, I'm double-checking whether that is the one I'm thinking of, but is it the, isn't that the first bit about him sort of being in the army quite a lot and, and doing all of his testing in, in the... Yeah, it covers that and the, the work in the Israeli um, military and so on. But um, Finding a lot of fault in the way that they identified mm. people coming through. Oh, they're going to be good, they're going to be good. Mm. And actually, they were no better than chance in, yeah. in identifying. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I remember. Um, so I, I want to move us on to um, another big piece of work that you were involved with um, that I mentioned in the intro about the um, social determinants of health. You, you were involved. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what you did there and where we... Uh, well, where, where you ended up with that in 2007? Well, at the time, uh, let me think, when they, this was when the commission was being established, and Sir Michael Marmot uh, was putting together the commission for the WHO, uh, I was still working at the Health Development Agency, mm-hmm. and the team working with Michael um, approached us at the HDA or other people at the HDA not me initially, I don't think, uh, and they were looking for um, collaborators to work for the commission, and the idea was a series of uh, collaborators around the world who would major on different aspects of the social determinants of health. So there was going to be one on childhood, there was going to be one on um, work, there was going to be one on... Um, housing I think and so on so a variety of these places and they would be located in different centres mm. around the globe but from the health development agency what they were looking for uh, was expertise in methodology and uh, as I mentioned way back in the interview we had spent um, our time from 2000 onwards trying to work out the best way to do to translate the evidence-based yeah. approach um, of Cochrane and all this kind of thing meaningfully into a world that doesn't have many randomised controlled trials, that doesn't, that relies on evidence and ideas from a very wide variety of disciplines, including the social sciences. How did you pull all that together? And because of the work we'd done on that, that's what we were pulled in to do. So mm-hmm. we did the, um, I think it was the evidence network, it was called some part of the network anyway, yeah. um, and um, produced a, a manual uh, on broadly the interpretation of evidence relating to inequalities in health and the social determinants of health. And what we set out to do uh, with collaborators from, again, all around the world who joined that that group that we had, um, was to try and get beyond um, the individualism of epidemiology to a broader Mm -hmm. dynamic understanding of the types of evidence that could be used, and then the strengths and limitations of what you could do with that evidence once you had it. And uh, that, um, last time I looked, was still on the WHO website. There's um, a man, and he's quoted, I see, periodically um, as, a, as a guide to assembling evidence. And, of course, that also meant we met with the other networks and we went to the different places that were involved in the... Um, the, the worldwide collaboration on the social determinants. And then at the end of the period, 
the actual commission sat, I think, for two years, finished 2007, and then their final report, along with all the supporting stuff that the networks had done, including ourselves, mm-hmm. um, were published simultaneously um, by WHO, published electronically by WHO, and there was, of course, a main report that was made available in, in print version too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, the, 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 s- the sad thing was it came out and we had the launch just in the middle of the banking crisis in yeah. 2008. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, much of the energy that could have gone into um, making the recommendations a reality were just sucked away by the the aftermath of the banking mm. crisis globally. Yeah. I mean, not just in, in the United Kingdom. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think I came from a meeting at the Treasury about nationalising the banks or saving the banks um, to the conference hall in um, Westminster to do the launch. Well, they were very close by each other oh, anyway. Um, so... Yeah, that's what that was. And it's, um, I, I think much of what we did in that manual still stands. Um, clearly, the evidence has accumulated since then and has, um, you know, made... Um, what, what I think the whole thing did, actually, was it, it, it marked a really important change for WHO in that they wanted to move from being simply making political statements like the Ottawa Charter mm-hmm. um, and the various things over the years which they'd said about the wider determinants, which essentially were, were pragmatic, or pro, sorry to say, programmatic statements about yeah. what should happen. What I think the Commission sought to do was to go further than that and say, well, if we're going to make it happen, what's the evidence we can use to do that? Yeah. And it really was a debt-clearing exercise, so to speak, it seemed to me, to... Um, provide uh, a basis for that and um, to build for the future. I think it's a sad sad that it's now 12 years, 11 years since that report was put out. There have been other reports that Michael has done uh, for the UK and, and beyond. Um, but the, um, the, re- the need, it seems to me, there is a need to revisit that evidence again um, 10 years on or whatever it is, um, to update it. And I think that would be a, a great project for WHO um, to, to take on. And what's interesting is uh, probably two months ago now, so this is being recorded in uh, beginning of October, uh, a couple of months ago, the whole systems approach for obesity, which is sort of, I'll bring this up as in my field, uh, but the whole systems approach for obesity came out last week, I think, or the week before, the British Psychological Society put out a paper that the media picked up essentially with the question, is obesity a choice? Um, and so all of the, and, and I, I did a, a, you know, a local radio interview about that and they still had a nutritionist on and a, a personal trainer to talk about obesity and, and not the, the broader thing. I mean, I was yeah, yeah. there to discuss the broader yeah. ideas. Um, do you think that, that now we're in a pl- in place where Matt Hancock is talking about prevention and he's talking about the sort of wider determinants and it being part of a system and not just not just in individual interventions? Do you think we're actually at a place that that might actually happen now? We might well, I think it? people are talking the talk, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but we need to move beyond talking the talk, mm-hmm. by which I mean it's very easy in Kahneman's terms, to default to a new heuristic, which is whole systems or complexity, um, as if that's the answer. Um, 
And if that's all, if if that is all that happens, it's a default. Say, oh yeah, we know it's complex. It's all about complexity. And and I've heard this um, often. What I think um, one needs to try to do is to move that discourse on from the acknowledgement that it's complex and its whole systems to something much more um, scientific about the nature of what that system is and how it works. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's really difficult. That's not something you can just say, well, that's the answer. It's something that requires detailed forensic scientific scrutiny of the dynamics of social systems or social structures, um, of the intersections of the different parts of social systems and how they work together, all that kind of thing, um, in order to uh, allow you to be able to make the kind of forensic interventions to make a difference. And what about the... um... The issue that the, the more complex something is and the more nodes on a network, for example, if you're talking about the social um, environment, the more difficult it is to actually see what exactly about a, a system that you're trying to change is doing what, how much is each part contributing? Mm-hmm. Because that's going to be a big barrier in terms of, in a limited financial environment, yeah, yeah. how do you decide, well, we can do these five things, but not these ten, because... These have got more clear outcomes, but that doesn't necessarily mean that in this complex system they're the most effective things because you sort of you might be better to dilute those and have a, a little bit of everything to try mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. how do you how do you navigate that? What what's the answer from the an evaluation perspective and then a direction of funding? Well, I mean in simple terms, there are several stages. The first is to map out your best understanding of the nature of that system and its uh, component parts and the the way they fit together. Now, that's really only ever a first start. Um, Then, having identified those key components, that that becomes a research agenda. Because in order to know how those things relate to each other, you don't just draw a line on a diagram between dots or Mm -hmm. nodes. Um, you have to understand what's going on um, between the nodes. Um, and an arrow doesn't explain that. You need to understand the mechanisms of those relationships. Um, and once you've got an understanding of those relationships empirically, and it is an empirical question, it's not a theoretical question, it's an empirical question, once you've got an understanding of the nature of those empirical relationships, you are in a better position to make those decisions about, do I do A, B, C, do I do X, Y, Z, or do I do 26 things or 126 things or just one? Mm. Um, and where that's going to get the biggest bang for your buck in terms of population health. And to, to be honest, uh, my own view is that we're nowhere near um, a clear understanding of the nature of those um, relationships yet. It was a, a constant problem for us at NICE. You know, you know that... Um, on average, in a whole population, you would get an effect of such and such a size from such and such an intervention at such and such a cost, giving you a, a quality value, a cost-effectiveness measure of something that was worthwhile doing. Yeah. But how that would work in community X among um, white working-class boys, uh, how it would work among 
Bangladeshi middle-aged women, how it would work among um, schoolgirls in leafy Surrey, you know, the evidence just doesn't tell you this at all. And it, it's curious to me um, that in, in clinical medicine, there is a profound and deep understanding of the fact that people are biologically different to each other and that there's biological variation and therefore if you've got a, you know, a, a room of 100 people and you gave them all the same dose of the same drug, you wouldn't get an identical effect in those 100 people. You'd get variation. And you might even have a horrible outlier, mm-hmm. um, which is a deadly dose to that person, um, and for some it would do no good whatsoever. And we now understand, of course, that's because of these biological differences and you know, the, the um, personalised medicine picks up on, on all of this. But what I think I would say to you is that social variation is even greater than biological variation. And yet our understanding of that social variation is somewhere where Renaissance, pre-Renaissance medicine was. You know, it knew bodies did, and they kind of guessed uh, about what to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm afraid a lot of public health, because it simply doesn't have the information about where to target things, how to target things, how to tailor things, how it will work in particular places. A lot of it is, is you know, guesswork. On average, it will do good. Um, well, you know, we could do better than that, I think. But you can't do better than that until you know about the nature of the, the social variation in the population and how it works. That's and it's no excuse to say it's too complicated because no. the human body's complicated, yet we've, you know, we understand it much better than the pre-Renaissance physicians did. Mm. Um, so we should try and get a bit more on top of our understanding of the social world, I think. Yeah, one, one of the, um, one of, so one of the questions I usually ask is, what, from what you're doing in your role, how does that actually interact with people on the ground, an actual person, and help them change their behaviour in some way? Um, and we can answer that question in a moment if, you, if you've got an answer for that but the, the ma- what, what I was thinking in the way you were talking there is that when you're curating evidence for NICE for example you are basing it on the best available evidence mm-hmm. from a sort of a, a, a desktop research piece and then looking at systematic reviews and all the different levels mm-hmm. of evidence that you can amass to be able to come up with the guidance right how well do you think that is translated into on the ground interventions because as as a a provider of services i see and this is this is a classic and it's a you know it's it's almost a joke um must conform to relevant nice guidance colon and then 26 different types of nice guidance and you you have to de- you know describe how you conform to all those in 500 words <laughs> and mm. it's almost like it's just paying lip service to that to the fact that oh yes we can we conform to all this one and that one and blah 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 but what I wonder is, having having read a lot of nice guidance, whilst you were in post, I, I had to read all of those different nice guidance, both from my public health <laughs> role and from my, you know, provider role because mm-hmm. they were concurrent as well. Um, they were quite hard to interpret into an intervention yeah. and not contradict other types and yep. and be across them all. Do you see yeah, what I mean? Yeah, like, I, do. I do. How do they end up in the hands of of a practitioners like myself and b um, people on the ground and, and changing their behaviour? Well, as far as uh, the public health guidelines go, um, 
the guidelines themselves were not simply and only um, the product of the evidence, because, as you say, there's evidence, you, you can only work with the evidence that's there, and that will always be um, flawed in various kinds of ways, and, you know, your job is to work out how good it is. But the committee structure of the guideline development groups was such that you have people round the table who are precisely the people who are on the ground doing it. And the question for them is to say, well, look, the evidence points us in the direction that X is very likely to produce a beneficial effect. How would that play in South Manchester, um, in the East End of London, um, in the countryside, in Norfolk? And by working with that kind of... the a judgment process, and it is a judgment process, but it's a judgment based on the equivalent of clinical experience, but it's public health experience. Mm-hmm. How would that work in those? And what we would then seek to do is bring together the judgment processes, the clinical judgment, if you like, of the public health practitioners, um, as well as users and as well as people who are going to be on the receiving end of that. They were always part of the NICE communities in order to try and get us to a point that it was more likely to be helpful than not. Now, the second uh, very important thing to say is that, from NICE's point of view anyway, guidelines were only ever guidelines. They were not tram lines or must-dos, at least as far as clinical guidelines and public health guidelines were concerned. What they were there to do was to provide the practitioner with a better with a platform for making better decisions than they would in the absence of those guidelines. So it was designed to be something that was a a decision aid almost, not to make the decision for you. Now, one has to say that unfortunately, that's not always been the way that um, the guidelines have been interpreted or used. Mm. Um, But their, their intent is very clear. It's not to tell you what to do in every single circumstance, because we can't possibly do that. But it's to say, look, this is our best understanding of that thing called evidence. This is our best understanding of that thing called how that might be applied in practice. And this is what, you know, this is our best understanding at the moment in the full knowledge that new evidence might come along that changes things. But at the moment, this is our best understanding of it. And that that is the basis to help you as a practitioner on the front line. Just as, you know, with a doctor sitting with a patient, the NICE guideline doesn't tell them what to do um, because they can't possibly do that because patients are all different. Um, but it's to help that physician um, make a better decision or a more well-informed decision than they would without the guideline. Um, and that's what we were seeking to try to do. Mm-hmm. Because it's impossible to imagine that you can produce a guideline that could cover every single possible you know, circumstance, even in a relatively small country like United Kingdom or England. Um, so that, that was, that was a, it was a platform to make, to make better decisions, even though, I mean, in reality, well, in practice, that's not always been the way. And it's been used as a management tool and, and all that kind of thing. Um, to 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 get compliance and so on and so forth uh, in some circumstances. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the, I mean, but it's a really tricky place, and um, it, it's why to go back. You know, first one of the first things we spoke about, which is you know, evidence based meets democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that's the reality. And, you know, it's no good producing guidelines that the democratically elected members of a council are going to, say, reject out of hand, because it ain't going to go nowhere. No, um, true. Uh, so it, we tried, we tried to be as real life as we possibly could. And looking back, are you, are you, do you look favourably on how it went, or are you...? I do, actually, yeah. you know, but at the same time, saying that the guideline we did on X um, 10 years ago um, will need to be updated and changed. Um, it's not, you know, they're not tablets down the mountain or up the mountain or wherever it was, yeah. um, tablets of stone. These are living documents which reflect um, the nature of a changing world, including a changing world of scientific knowledge, um, as best one can. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Um, so let me change tack a little bit here. So um, I'm interested in your views on this. I'm conscious that we're um, we're recording for longer than I normally would, because normally we'd be sort of through a lot of the questions by now. But th- I think people will forgive that if, if you've got the time. Um, what do you think we should be doing more of today that people in the real world, um, so that people in the real world will benefit from good behaviour change science? Well, the, actually, the answer to that is a very simple one. We do have, um, in the psychological sciences, some very good stuff. Yeah. There are some um, extraordinarily uh, powerful um, scientific, um, psychologically based interventions that are as as good as we can currently get it. Um, the work of colleagues like Theresa Marteau, who we've already mentioned, um, uh, Susan Mickey uh, at University College in London, Robert West, the smoking um, specialist, non-giving up smoking specialist, uh, also at University College, um, Mary Johnson, um, University of Aberdeen, um, and others, um, and the UK has been pretty ahead of it seems to me on much of this they have produced stuff that one has to look at very very seriously yeah but the problem is not with that research the problem has been the policy pays scant attention to it and a lot of behavior change type policy is still based on what I can only describe as common sense thinking you know, come on, let's just tell people what they need to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's the problem here? Um, you know, it's bad for you, don't do it. Um, or I've got an app that'll make people change. Uh, this kind of really um, simplistic thinking, which pays scant or no attention to what we actually know uh, about behaviour change. And so, as I say, the answer is really straightforward. Don't junk that which is... Um, you know, the gold standard in evidence about behaviour change. Even, you know, as a sociologist, I can see all sorts of issues with the individualistic approach. Mm. But this is good science. Mm. So you don't, as I can, you know, I've got all sorts of problems with molecular biology, but it's still been incredibly important and powerful and helpful to the human condition. Uh, And so um, the idea that we could just ignore it and a minister can come along and say, well, I just don't believe this stuff. Um, I know how people change. Let's give them financial incentives or some other thing. Um, So that's in part, these other places we can get to in the future, the more dynamic understanding, all that sort of thing. 
But, you know, for goodness sake, let's not ignore what we know yeah. and what is demonstrably powerful stuff. So there just needs to be a general sort of embracing of we're not perfect, but we've got a good model here. We should sort of be running, absolutely. running with it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and the other th- I suppose the other question I've got with that is how to make sure, because a lot of your work has been focused because you're in public health so obviously all your work is really based on reducing inequalities so how do we make sure and preventing disease and preventing disease but how 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 do we make sure that the 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 behavioral science that we've that we've got to work with is applied in such a way that it does actually do that and it doesn't end up widening the inequalities gap (laughs) well um that's a very, very important point um, because, um, you know, well, and, and, and I've written about this, that um, if we take a whole population approach um, in certain circumstances, because we know that some types of intervention are taken up more readily and more rapidly in some parts of the population than in others, mm. you can get a widening. You get, a, you know, a shift in the gradient um, Everyone gets a bit better, but some get a lot better. And the ones who get a lot better are the ones who are already in the best of health. Mm. Now, in order to um, obviate that, you don't level down. That would be quite a, a foolish, foolhardy mm. kind of approach. What you seek to do is understand, speaking about a moment ago, the, the nature of the populations that you're interested in working with in order that they can all move upwards and indeed those most in need can move up more quickly. Mm. But, as I said a little while ago, because our knowledge of the nature of the way intervention, interventions work in different parts of the population is so limited, our ability to apply that principle is also very limited. And unfortunately... Um, a lot of the scientific invent, inter, scientific investigations of the effectiveness of interventions doesn't explore differential effectiveness, um, and therefore the knowledge it just remains still unknown. Mm-hmm. But that's a really important part of the research agenda, um, and one I would like to see, um, you know, embrace much more. That's, a lot of the time, you know, people will collect data about different segments in the population, albeit socioeconomic status, but they use it to test the, for confounding uh, in the data, not for differential effectiveness. Right. And it's the differential effectiveness question that you really need to know the answer to. Do, do you think there would be a time when you were... Because I, I, it seems to me quite logical, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's true, that... If if you if you learn something that would work for people in low socioeconomic groups um, to improve their health in some way, that if you make that information or or if it's an upstream intervention available to to everyone anyway, that the people with less impediments to do that, people in the higher socio social gradients, would naturally just benefit. Is, do you think there's really a way to? specifically target well, that, that, that lower SES. Well, as I said a moment ago, I think in, in principle um, there is, so long as you've got the empirical information to do right. it, but we don't have the empirical so information. But 
That said, that doesn't mean we should not do it at all, because if all you've got is a population-wide intervention that is applied universally, that is going to benefit everybody, albeit it will benefit some more than others, and they're already in the best, that's not a reason not to do it, Mm -hmm. because everyone is getting some benefit. Because if we had adopted that principle, um, you know, with things like, vaccination and all sorts of interventions down the years um we'd have got nowhere Mm -hmm. so you know sometimes that's all that's available is the is the universal application of the principle and we've not got enough to do the targeted um type of universalism um that michael marmot for example has recommended but many others too but in order to do that targeting we need much a much better um understanding of social differentiation and the intersections of those differentiations than we currently have to have. Do you think that comes from then doing it, doing what we can do with what we've got, and then looking really heavily at the groups that you're really trying to sort of bring up uh, at the lower end of that and saying, what is particularly working in this group and what what could we differentiate? No, I think there's a step before that, which is about understanding the nature of those groups. Um, in other words, what we don't have to hand, and sociologists have not been very helpful in this regard. You know, we, I, I used to joke that we knew a great deal more about French post-structuralism than we knew about British society um, in, in British sociology um, because it, it lost a focus in British sociology in the 60s and 70s on those types of community studies which... Um, would allow you to have a much better understanding of the nature of the community dynamics mm. um, in a highly granular and variegated way um, and not seek to generalise um, on the basis of what happens in the east end of London to every working class community or every yeah. um, mixed ethnic community in the country. Because, you know, well, first of all, the history of these different places are such that they affect the current status of the population um, in any given place. So to understand the dynamics of the East End of London, you need to understand its history mm-hmm. um, as, as, a, as a, a place where there's been an influx of people coming into the country for hundreds and hundreds of years. That's a different history to the history of, say, Manchester and its cotton mills and all of that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That's a different history to the workshops of Birmingham. Uh, that's a different history to the um, uh, engineering um, and steelworks of Sheffield. And each of those cities, while having apparently, will each have a social gradient, what makes up the gradient and makes up the population in each of those places carries with it an imprint of those earlier generations and a footprint of those earlier industries and the political and economic circumstances of those particular places. And with a few exceptions, um, we as sociologists have been very slow um, in the contemporary era to describe and write about Mm -hmm. and study those sorts of communities in a way that would be helpful to um, the... Uh, public health community seeking to understand what's happening when they do a smoking cessation intervention or a physical activity intervention or whatever it is. So maybe that's the way in for sociologists. I think so, although community studies have kind of, you know, died a bit of a death and, you know, they've... But there are... I mean, I I like the work of Savage, uh, who writes on social class. I think he, among contemporary authors, writes in a way that, you know, really gets at the nuance 
um, of um, what he called, uh, or refers to anyway, as the precariat. Mm-hmm. Um, those who are, well, I suppose a bit what Theresa May called just getting by, but they, yeah. they're surviving, uh, often living in their own homes yeah. with jobs. But the nature of the, the, the lived experience of that um, is, you know, not particularly conducive to um, pursuing um, activities that will, in the long run, benefit one's health. And where the bandwidth is pretty, pretty short sure, on, on exactly. being able to... to Quite so, quite so. Yeah. Um, now, Savage is, is, is one of the exceptions, and he's, um, he came down here to Cambridge to talk to our inequalities group a year or so ago, and it was really interesting to get an insight into that sort of work. But I think, you know, again, he's, he's got a very specific place and geography and time um, linked to his work. Mm. There are umpteen communities where that sort of information um, would be completely valuable and helpful to a public health community. Mm. Um, it's almost like they need that in all of the public health teams almost or well, yes. counties. Or, yes, or, or, or I, absolutely. But I don't see much evidence that that's right. you know, being done in any sense systematically. But, you know, they're ex- and, and a good local director of public health knows their community yeah. um, and has a sense of it and an understanding of it and a sympathy and an empathy for it. Um, which they bring to bear. But we need more than sympathy and empathy. We need the empirical data mm. about how it works. Wonderful. Um, so I, I want to move away from um, sort of coming to, to a close um, and just to see how do you use your knowledge of um, behaviour change in your personal life? Is it something that you, you use regularly? Well, yes. Um, <laughs> I have done for many years. Um, so I've always um, been quite an active person. Um, but as I get older, um, keeping the momentum going uh, becomes increasingly hard, partly because my physiological um, capacity declines with age a bit, not as fast as they used to think, but it's still declining. Mm-hmm. I can't go as fast as I used to. Mm-hmm. Um, Does your brain know that, though? I can see it on the times I'm doing. I can see it on the ergometer. I can yeah, see yeah. the times I'm doing in a rowing boat. Um, but, um, you know, I have to remind myself when I think, you know, I really, you know, I'm going to go and I'm not going to do another. This. Do I really want to do this? And I, for example, thought, I was thinking about it recently and I looked at um, the COMB framework. You know, what's the, what are the competencies um, opportunity, motivation, and which bit have I got to think about here to help me do it? And that's just a, a sort of personal example. Um, but uh, so yes, I do. So that's actually using a, a tool in your personal life. Yeah, that. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, okay. Like, I mean, it'd be mad not to. I know. I know they? it works. Well, so. you, well, you said. I mean, the few people <laughs> I spoke to, they just say, "Well, yeah," and they they've given some broad examples. I had a really good academic example from um, Chris Armitage, who was a an academic in, in this field, but he had thought through lots of implementation intentions and if-then plans and all that type of stuff. So, um, But other people just gave sort of more, I don't know, more normal answers, just sort of, yeah, sometimes. Well, sort you of know, I mean, well, the other example, if, if we're running a little event, we will think carefully about what kind of food to put on offer mm. 
And in the full knowledge that if we get people in for coffee before and we put loads of biscuits and pastries, they'll eat them all. Yeah. And there'll be people there who will be on, will try to restrict their calorie intake, and we've done nothing to help them at all. Mm, yeah. So, you know, that would be another... Choice of architecture. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's not... And we know, this is Theresa's group here in Cambridge, stuff on portion size um, is... You can apply that in your own life as well. Mm-hmm. You don't have to... You know, you, you, you've perfectly satiated um, long before um, a big plate full of stuff needs to be consumed. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I do. Um, good. Well, that's and, good um, to hear. I, as I say, I think I'd be a hypocrite not It'd be, to. It'd be a waste. <laughs> sure. A lot of knowledge. Um, okay, so if someone was... Uh, what would your advice be to someone who is interested in getting into the, the public health field, into the behaviour change or behavioural science field more specifically? Um, if they were, say, two, two scenarios, one sort of coming out of university and two sort of mid, mid-career if they were looking to get into the behavioural sciences because it's sort of coming around in quite a big way now. Well, I, if, well one route clearly would be to um, engage with the kinds of academics and the academic writing I'm talking about, either formally through the courses on offer in various places, um, although I'd choose them with care. Um, but also, you can engage with that literature directly yourself. You don't need to you know, get a degree to read um, these papers. Mm. Um, and there are some, you know, some of the websites uh, that the... Um, Human Behaviour Change Project, for example, at UCL put out. There's a lot of very good stuff on there that mm-hmm. um, you can um, you can access quite easily, I think. Um, although I say that as someone who uses these things regularly, so it may be less easy if you're coming at it externally. Yeah. Um, one very valuable source is um, Susan Mickey's book on the behaviour change techniques, which is both comprehensive and um, accessible and uh, can be looked at uh, with profit. Great. And then finally, where can people go to find out a little bit more about your project and your work and the things you're involved with? As regards health inequalities, there's the uh, St John's College um, reading group on health inequalities, and if you type that in, you'll you'll get the the web link. You can access uh, my publications quite easily, um, most of which are open access Mm-hmm. Just type in Kelly Michael P, which is what I publish as, uh, and they'll come up. Um, they'll come up on your um, University of Cambridge page. They do, actually, they so do. That's, but that's not always as up to date as it right. might be. There's a lot on there if people want to access. Yeah, those. they can. So. Um, and uh, I, th- I, I never look at it, but I believe a lot of my old talks and television appearances and all that stuff are still available on. Um, there's a very there's a very (laughs) muffled but worth sticking with recording from the university of oxford um on um the evidence-based medicine i can't remember what the title of it was um but it was it was i mean it's seriously it must have been in someone's pocket or something but it's really worth listening to it's really (laughs) it's well it's well worth sticking with even though it's quite frustrating to listen to scary Um, isn't it people yeah yeah i I don't know when it's it must have been official because it's on their website it's on the university of oxford's website it's just a terrible quality recording but it it is worth sticking with was that the evidence live yeah um, yeah it was yeah conference well they run that annually yeah um 
and um, yeah, I, I spoke at it several times. It's very good. Mm. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. That's great. Um, thanks so much for your time, Mike. It's been fascinating. It's been actually like a, a history of public health and of uh, behaviour change, and <laughs> we've talked about sociology, philosophy, uh, psychology, epistemology, all sorts. I mean, it's been a real run through from from back into the you know the. Uh, 20th century, 19th century, a little bit, and um, it's been really interesting to hear your journey through Nice, especially the stuff how it interacts with the uh, the political world, uh, and something that I'm not sure if we said earlier, but I I, I love this, uh, so I'm going to read this too. That evidence is part of a political process, and it plays out in a political arena. So you need to be clued up on that because policy and politics aren't the same thing. Mm. I really think that sums up a lot of a, a good bulk of the conversation that we had mm. today mm. about, mm. you know, why it's important to d- use the best evidence but make sure it's actually accessible in a political sense, mm. and then for people in the real world. Um, so thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating talking to you, and I think this is going to be a really popular uh, episode in the show. Thank you very much indeed, and thanks for the opportunity to have a chat. I just wanted to say thanks again to Mike, because I think he was an excellent guest, and he gave a really broad range of experiences across the two podcasts. I hadn't intended to do it over two when I first started interviewing Mike, but I think it was well worth splitting this into two so that you get the richness of all the the experience that Mike's had over the last um, 30 years or so that he's been in, in public health. Um, these two podcasts were technically Christmas specials and I hope you enjoyed them Um, what we're going to do next month in in the beginning of January we'll have uh, Professor Wendy Wills coming out who's an academic uh, with a sociological background um, talking about her experience in working across academia but also in a very pragmatic way uh, to help in the public health industry particularly around food and food environments Don't forget to go to bsphn.org.uk to go and get your conference tickets for the 12th of February next year. It promises to be a great event and it's a really good place to meet other people who've got an interest in behavioural science. Um, I also just wanted to say thanks to the BSPHN for helping me put this podcast out. I hope people enjoy it. I've had loads of great feedback, lots of uh, interesting comments over the last six or seven months. Um, So, yeah, thank you very much to the BSPHN members. Uh, I hope you all have a great Christmas. Um, And in the meantime, I just wanted to say thanks for listening. I hope you have an amazing Christmas and a really great new year. Uh, And I look forward to hearing from more of you over LinkedIn or Twitter or through email. Uh, If you want to get hold of me, I'm on Stu underscore King underscore HH on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn um, and have a great Christmas.